slip up your hand if that's you. If not, go ahead and turn, if you would, to the book of 2 Thessalonians this morning. We're going to obviously continue our study uh, there of the, of the book of 2 Thessalonians, where we've been for quite a few weeks now. But last week we covered the first two verses of the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, and we got into a little bit of verse 3. And, and we saw that throughout the entire book of 1 Thessalonians, and throughout even the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the writers of this book, the, both of these books, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy haven't had a single negative thing to say about this church this entire time. And then last week we dove into chapter 2, and as we began chapter 2, that's when that all began to change. And, and all of a sudden there were some, some negative things that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had to say. And, and, and the reason that the church of the Thessalonians was getting called out in this chapter is because Satan had gotten himself a foothold in a place where he gets himself a foothold many times, and that's in this realm of false doctrine. False teaching had come into this church concerning the events of the last days, and it had gotten this church rattled in their minds and in their emotions. That through this false doctrine, the, the church of the Thessalonians, they believed that they were going to that they were living in the tribulation period and that they were going to continue to live throughout the duration of the tribulation period. They they had come to believe that somehow they had they had missed the rapture and so they're present tense living in the tribulation period. I can't imagine waking up tomorrow morning and believing that. That would be quite the sobering reality in, in, in the, but in the midst of all the persecution that this church of the Thessalonians had gone through, you can almost understand why they might think for a second that that was their reality, that they might be tempted to believe that false teaching that had come in and been presented to them. And, and so last week we concluded by talking about how important it is to, to nail down why, why we believe what we believe. Why you got to nail that down for yourself or you are going to find yourself tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine that comes on through. Or when you get outside of the protection of a church that teaches sound doctrine and you're out there navigating that, you, you'll find yourself gravitating to the path of least resistance. And so as we continue and we begin this morning, we're entering what is certainly a very challenging portion of scripture there is no doubt what what we'll be tackling in, in this morning and in the coming weeks are what i would consider to be one of the most difficult and challenging passages in the entire new testament uh, these verses coming they they that's they're just it's just hairy in there and so throughout our, our study of the books of first and second thessalonians man we have we, we've covered a lot of practical things we've take, had a lot of practical application that we've applied lots of uh, oftentimes even very simple practical applications right have faith love each other like christ loved you right these these types of things and these are these are essential things of course but the, but this morning we're we're it's going to get a little deeper than that there's prophecy involved and there's just some more difficult subjects uh, that we're going to be covering and so what i need you to do for me is i just need you to be prepared this morning to pay extra close attention it's not going to come as easy 
as it usually comes, and so I need you to need you to work with me a little bit. You guys always work with me, but I need you to work with me even just a little bit more this morning. So let's go ahead and read the, the next few verses of Second Thessalonians chapter two, but let's begin in verse one to set the stage. Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse one. It says it says this Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? So as we read this, and as you read along, and you can, you can understand how there, could, how there could be some confusion as it relates to this passage. There's a decent bit for us to unpack here, and, and my goodness, we could spend a lot of time here. But, but my hope this morning is, is to be able to present this just as simply as I can so that we can get some handles on this thing. We, we've already covered some of these verses, but, but as we work our way through this passage, there's, there's something we need to get a hold of in order for us to really be able to understand verse 3. In, in verse 3, we see there is a particular day that's not going to come until there's a falling away first. And that day, according to verse 2, is the day of Christ. Okay, so first, if we're going to understand this passage, we need to understand the day of Christ. Understanding the day of Christ. It's going to be, it's, it's going to be vital to us understanding that day, referring back to the day of Christ, will not come until there's a falling away first. And, 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 and why don't you go ahead and put that next slide up there so we have the, the verses back on the screen, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, okay, so, so listen closely. So, so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're, they're comforting the church of the Thessalonians who have been deceived into believing that they're living in the tribulation period. And, and Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're reassuring them that that's not the time that you're living in, guys, or there would be certain things that you would be witnessing. And those events are the events laid out in the second half of verse 3 and in verse 4. They would have seen a falling away first, and later, the man of sin, better known as the Antichrist, being revealed. Now, one of the reasons that, that this is such a confusing and misunderstood passage, in my estimation, surra is surrounding the meaning of the day of Christ. Because according to verse 3, that day, referring back to the day of Christ, will not come unless there's a falling away first, and then the man of sin is revealed. So, so what exactly is the day of Christ? It begs the question. It, it, now, the day of Christ, it is a, it's, this is a day that is commonly viewed in connection with the rapture. But we need to make sure that before we just accept that as our final definition, we need to make sure that we define this term biblically and understand if maybe there's a little more to it than just that. 
Because you see, the, the danger of what happens in this passage, if you don't get it right, is, is that this is the passage that many people run to to try to prove a mid-tribulation rapture or other misconceptions about the timing of the rapture and about the church going through all or a portion of the tribulation period. Because the revealing of the man of sin that's referenced in verse 3, that revealing is described for us as to what that is in verse 4. Verse 4, the man of sin and the Antichrist, that is showing us how he is revealed. This is also a re referred to as the abomination of desolation. Right? You've heard that term probably in this church. This is, this is a, that's another name for what's happening here in verse 4. It's called that in multiple places in the Bible. And the abomination of desolation doesn't happen according to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 until the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. And we'll, we'll talk about that more later and in the coming weeks. But if that happens in the middle of the tribulation period and the Antichrist comes in and sits on that throne in the temple in Jerusalem, and the day of Christ simply means the rapture, then maybe we don't get raptured out until after we've seen the abomination of desolation at the midway point of the tribulation. Are you following that? And so what I, that's why I'm saying if we don't define our terms, we, we, can, we can get tangled up. We need to have a complete understanding of the phrase, the day of Christ, in the Bible so we don't get ourselves turned around and so we don't find ourselves exactly as 2 Thessalonians 2-3 warns deceived and, and and so we need to understand what the day of christ is now again the day of christ is commonly understood to be a reference to the rapture and second thessalonians 2 2 references the thessalonians believing that the day of christ was at hand it's commonly understood to mean the thessalonians thought they missed the rapture and were living in the tribulation period because you need to understand, though, when verse 2 says that the Thessalonians believed that the day of Christ was at hand, they believed it was at hand as in present tense. Sometimes we, we use the term at hand to mean it, it's something that's coming soon. But this same phrase, is at hand, is interpreted by our King James translators as present five out of seven times that it's used. Okay, They believed the day of Christ was happening right then at that present moment. This is happening. We're in the midst of it. And so I, and so I, I want us to get a better understanding, though, of what this day of Christ actually is. And, and one of the ways that I believe that's going to be very beneficial for us to understand it is, compare, is by comparing it to a day that we're a lot more familiar with. And we're a lot more familiar with, and I'm imagining most of you would be much more familiar with, the day of the Lord. And if we understand the day of the Lord, and many of you do, I think it's going to help us to understand the day of Christ. So this term, the day of the Lord, it, it comes up. This comes up a lot in the Bible. It comes up a lot more than the day of Christ does. The day of the Lord is oftentimes also referred to in our, in our King James Bible as that day. Right. And when you trace the day of the Lord and that day through the Bible, what you find out is, is that the day of the Lord 
covers a whole lot more than just a day. It's not, it, it covers quite a, quite a large period of time, in fact. And, and, and sure, it's most definitely connected and most commonly connected to the second coming, but it's also connected to the period of time surrounding the second coming. And that period of time is, is everything following the rapture. So it's the tribulation period, the second coming, it's the millennium, and it even goes into the new heaven and the new earth. So, so when the Bible refers to the day of the Lord, though oftentimes it is ref- making a specific reference to the second coming, when you trace it to the, through the Bible, there's a lot more that that term and that phrase encompasses in our Bibles. It's covering much more than a day, and it's covering much more than one event. You could never act like that term exclusively applies to the second coming. And, and it works the exact same way with the day of Christ. Sure, it's connected to the rapture. That's for sure. But it's also connected to the judgment seat of Christ. In, in fact, it could be argued that this phrase is every bit as connected to the judgment seat of Christ as it is to the rapture. There are seven places in the Bible where the phrase either the day of Christ, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day of Jesus Christ, or the day of the Lord Jesus are used, and they're all, in my estimation, somehow connected to the judgment seat of Christ. We won't look at all seven of them, but we will look at three of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8 is one of those places. It, it says that, that that Jesus shall confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, this verse is talking about being blameless in the day of judgment or the day or the judgment seat of Christ. They want us to be he, about being blameless in that day. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15 uses the same phrase like this. It says that ye be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. All right, are you seeing that? You see, we can rejoice in the day of Christ when we see that we haven't run or labored in vain, and we can finally see through God's eyes, that what we did was fruitful, but we won't know that until our works are judged. It's a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, it's another place. It's used the same way. It, it, it says, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay, listen, this isn't a, that's not a direct reference to the rapture. That's a direct reference to the judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. And so again, though there are places that the phrase the day of Christ is a reference to the rapture, it is most certainly a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. So similar to the day of the Lord that is oftentimes connected to the second coming, but it actually spans a, a long period of time, including the tribulation and other events, similarly... The day of Christ is oftentimes connected to the rapture, but clearly spans a period of time because it's also connected to the judgment seat of Christ. And the reason it's important that we know that to understand our passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 
is because you're under, if your understanding is solely connected, if your understanding of the day of Christ is solely connected to the rapture, then there's just a lot of ways that you may be deceived because it can start to take you into some strange places in your end times theology if you're not careful. But that gives us at least a working knowledge of this lesser talked about day called the day of Christ. And so we see it's a day that's not only connected to the rapture, but is clearly connected to the judgment seat. And we could probably even connect it to a bigger time frame than that if we really wanted to, but it will not be necessary for us to understand our passage this morning. So hang on to that truth, because, uh, because next we're going to look at something else that I believe is going to be vital to us grasping the truth of this passage. And it's understanding what's happening in heaven while the tribulation period is happening on earth. We need to get an understanding of what's happening in heaven while the tribulation period is happening on earth. Because here's what you have to understand. We've talked all about connecting the day of Christ to the judgment seat of Christ. But what we have to understand is, is that the judgment seat of Christ is going to be taking place in heaven while the tribulation period is happening on earth. That's when the judgment seat of Christ is going to take place. It takes place in heaven after the rapture and before the second coming and, and, and before we come back with reward. So sometime after the rapture and before the second coming, the judgment seat of, place takes pl- the judgment seat of Christ takes place in heaven. So while that's happening in heaven, or, or as the day of Christ is happening in heaven, the day of the Lord in the tribulation period then is happening on earth simultaneously. And I think that's a way for us to start getting our heads wrapped around what, is, what this whole day of Christ thing is about. And, and, and I think that's going to help. The day of Christ is going on in heaven, the rapture and the judgment seat, while the tribulation period is going on on earth while one is going on above the other one's going on below and so what this brings us to in our passage this morning is the thessalonians believe that the day of christ is at hand or the day of christ is present tense so at that very moment they believe the day of christ has begun and because the day of christ begins with the rapture they think they've missed the rapture and Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they tell the Thessalonians that that couldn't be the case because if it was the period of time that the Bible calls the day of Christ and you actually did miss the rapture, then before the day of Christ began or before the rapture happened, you'd have had to have seen a falling away first. And then as the day of Christ, as the day of Christ then continues on in heaven, while people were coming before the judgment seat of Christ in heaven above, then below on earth, you'd be seeing the abomination of desolation. We know the falling away happens before the day of Christ begins, but if you understand the day of Christ and you understand that it's not simply the rapture, then you understand that after the rapture, the day of Christ continues to the judgment seat of Christ. And so as time continued after this falling away that they're describing as time continues and the day of Christ begins, it would have begun at the rapture. Then as the events of this day of the, as of the day of Christ continues in heaven, just uh, excuse me, 
as the events of the day of Christ continue in heaven, such as the judgment seat of Christ, as the day of Christ continued in heaven, this tribulation period is going on right along with it. And here comes the abomination of desolation. And that's something that they would have eventually seen it was if it was present tense, the day of Christ. In other words, if it's the day of Christ in heaven and you're still here on earth and you would have already seen a falling away prior to the rapture as the day of Christ began and as it continued in heaven, you'd eventually see the abomination of desolation on earth. You see, the falling away had to happen first before the day of Christ begins, but the passage doesn't say that the abomination of desolation has to happen first before the day of Christ begins. No, the falling away happens before the day of Christ begins. And then as the day of Christ continues in heaven, after the falling away on earth, then the abomination of desolation is going to be coming down the pike. The abomination doesn't have to happen first. It just has to happen after the falling away. So if the day of Christ is at hand, or the day of Christ is present tense, which is, again, more than a day, but a series of events, if it was the day of Christ at that moment, they would have seen a falling away first, and then they would have missed the rapture, and then they'd have been knocking on the door of the abomination coming down the pike, because as that day of Christ continued above, the tribulation period continued below, and when you understand that the day of Christ isn't just the event of the rapture, but a series of heavenly events that are happening, happening simultaneously with tribulation events, it begins to start making at least a little bit of sense. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy write, and they say, listen, you guys, you're, you're, getting, you're getting confused about all this, and this can be confusing, but you're getting confused. You, you haven't missed the rapture. You're not living in the tribulation period, and it's not the day of Christ. And you need to learn to understand the timing of the rapture and the second coming and the day of Christ and the day of the Lord, otherwise you're going to be deceived. And like we saw last week, that deception, it, it came, it came from, from false doctrine. And that, that false doctrine had really cost them something. It had cost them their hope. Remember, 1 Thessalonians, they're commended by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Man, this church is defined by faith and charity and hope. You get to 2 Thessalonians and they say, This church, you've continued to grow in faith and charity. What about hope? Oh, no, they didn't, they didn't mention the hope because false doctrine had crept in and had stolen their hope. They thought they were in the tribulation. They had, they had lost hope. They weren't growing in hope. False doctrine had crept in. It cost them their hope. The truth of the rapture, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.18, is supposed to give us comfort and hope. That's what the truth of the rapture is supposed to do. So now that we've gotten a grasp on the, on the timing of these events, let's look a little closer at the details. Because we've talked about a falling away, but we haven't really defined it. So we need to understand the falling away. Our passage says, letter A, there will be a falling away. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and, and verse 3, again, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. There, there's going to be a falling away before the day of Christ begins. The day of Christ begins at the rapture. So prior to the rapture, there's going to be a falling away. And listen, my friends, 
that falling away has already happened and is happening and will continue to happen. The falling away that needs to happen first has happened. <laughs> but what is this falling away exactly? Now, now, you certainly don't need Greek to understand your Bible, but the Greek word for a falling away is, is apostasia. And that is not a dish that you're going to order at the Olive Garden later on. I'd like some apostasia. No, that's, 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 not, that's not what that is. But I think you can tell that's probably where we get our English word for apostasy. And that word gets thrown at people a lot. You're an apostate. You've, you've committed apostasy. Right. And, and, and what that fancy word really means is, is it just means a, it's a falling away. Right. It means to fall from a previously standing position. And this is what needs to happen prior to the day of Christ, which is going to begin at the rapture. We're not talking about people losing their salvation. We're not, not talking about anything like that. This is about a falling away. You were once standing. Now you've fallen away. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, describes this falling away for us in, in detail. Here's what it says. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Listen, there's a great deception of there's a there's a great deception that has gone on, and, and this is a great description of what this falling away actually is. Before the day of Christ begins, in the latter times, there will be a falling away, and doctrine is a big reason for the falling away. People are departing from the faith, following seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Remember how it was that we saw that the devil's workers deceived last week from our passage here in 2 Thessalonians? 2 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, it says, don't be shaken you know, by, by, by word or, or by spirit. And that's exactly what 1 Timothy 4.1 was just talking about the same thing. In the latter times, people will be listening to seducing spirits and the words of doctrines of devils that Satan's ministers are teaching. That's why we're warned of those things, because that's how this whole thing works. They sound so nice and they sound so spiritual and it's seducing. It's the doctrine of devils, man. It's a falling away from a standing position. Second Timothy chapter four, verses three through four, it describes the falling away like this. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Listen, they're turning their ears from the truth. They were once listening to the truth, but there is a turn that happens, and that turn is from truth over to fables. It's a falling away and if you don't think we're living in it yet <laughs> you haven't been on youtube lately <laughs> to listen to what's going on on there this is this is important for us to understand because this is what's going on in the day and age that we're living in and because of that 
that means it's something that each and every one of us are especially susceptible to. That's why Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, it talks about what our posture is to be as a believer in Jesus Christ that's in a spiritual warfare, and we most certainly are. It says, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to what? Stand against the wiles of the devil. We're living in the midst of a falling away, y'all, but we've been called to stand. Two verses later, verse 13, it says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, verse 14, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Is he getting the point across in this passage yet? As Satan works and as he works and as he wars against us in the realm of false doctrine, and of course he also works against us as he works in conjunction with our flesh, he's trying to cause us to fall and God's teaching us, you better stand in the midst of that because those attacks are going to come. And he's teaching us to stand lest we fall away as a result of the attacks like so many around us have in the time that we're living in. We better put on the armor. 1 Corinthians 16.13 says, Watch ye. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. Ladies, you can apply this verse as in you need to get rooted in the faith and get you a spiritual backbone and stand on truth. And listen, for the fellas, we can take it like this. You need to act like a man and be strong and lead your family and stand strong in the faith. I can't tell you how frustrating it is to sit and watch so many women wear the spiritual pants in their family, and most of the time they don't want to. It's that, the, it's that their husband will not man up and be the spiritual leader, and he just cares about too many other things more than he cares about the things of God. And he'd just rather be hunting, and he'd rather be fishing and golfing and playing basketball and playing video games and all of these other things which are not wrong in and of themselves, but they are wrong when they get out of proportion for the way that we feel about the things of the Lord, right? When we get those things out of bounds, man, that's when we're starting to have, we're starting to have a whole lot of problems. There's just too many other things that we're preoccupied with to actually be a man and stand strong in the faith. This stuff becomes a god. This stuff becomes an idol when a guy's desire for those things is greater than his desire for the things of the Lord and spiritual things. And God is saying people are falling away all over the place, so you better stand strong and you better man up. 2 Corinthians 1.24 teaches us that it's by faith we stand. You realize that? That's, that's how... We're able to stand. We stand by faith. And what happens then when you lose faith, if you stand by faith? You fall. <laughs> and some of you are thinking, okay, cool. I think I'm standing. And man, I really, I, I really hope that you are. But if that's you, God does want to warn you of something if you are. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He wants to warn you that to let him that thinketh he stand. Take heed lest he fall. 
He says, you better be careful. If you're in a standing position now, man, you better be careful. That's great if we're standing, but we better not get comfortable and lose focus because it can happen to the best of us, and it can happen fast. You better take heed, or you better regard the fact that you're capable of falling to be sure you maintain your standing position. We're very vulnerable when we get too confident. Do you, do you guys know anybody that fits this description? You know anybody in your life? And I already know the answer to this question, but do you know anybody in your life that was once standing and now they've fallen? And they were once standing against the attacks of the devil and now they have fallen away? I know people who who couldn't stand and have fallen away because they've given into the lust of their flesh and they're living it up to get everything out of this life that they can. I know people who couldn't stand and have fallen away because they couldn't stand on sound doctrine when push came to shove. You know, one thing ab about being around for a few years now, that's a nice way of saying getting older. One thing that's nice about that is I've gotten to watch a lot of people get rooted in sound doctrine and I've gotten to see a lot of people begin following the Lord. And there are so many people I know that are still going strong and doing those things. Don't get me wrong. And they're such an encouragement. But in that same time, I've gotten to watch a whole lot of folks that I know they know better and I know they were taught better. And I know they were raised good. And I know they were taught sound doctrine their whole stinking life. And they fell away. They couldn't stand. They weren't man enough to stand. Maybe there are people here that fit that description. Do any of you ever feel like you were once standing and now you're not in a standing position anymore and you've fallen away? Man, if that is you, though, oh, man, there's such a there's such a great uh, commendation from the Lord in, in Revelation chapter two and verse five. We have the ability to do exactly what is prescribed to the church in Ephesus. It says, remember, therefore, if you've fallen, remember from whence thou art fallen. In other words, remember that standing position that you were in before you fell. And when you do that, repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. Man, if I've been describing your life, man, that is what you need to do this morning. Repent and do the first works. Repent and get back to the basics of what caused you to be in a standing position to begin with, man. Go back to the simple things of spending daily time in the Word of God, spending time daily in prayer, talking to God. Repent, man, and get back to the first works. It's simple. So, so as a group of people that are, are living at a time where there's an apostasy or there is a falling away we better be sure that we're standing because though in the physical world it's hard to miss it when we fall and we know usually when we have fallen unless we're completely unconscious in the spiritual world we the problem is is we don't always know right it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't work that way so we need to make sure that we're standing this morning so that falling away has to happen before the day of Christ begins and there is no question we're living in the day defined by a falling away Though Paul, Silas, and Timothy, though, they were living through persecution, they were not living in a time defined by those who were once standing who had fallen, right? They were living in a rough time. Yeah, they were getting persecuted, 
There's people persecuting them were never standing. You see, this is they were not defined. The time they're living in was not defined by a group of people that have fallen away. So Paul, Silas and Timothy, they give this church hope by describing that the rapture or the beginning of the day of Christ couldn't have happened yet because there hadn't been a falling away yet. But there's something else they would also be seen if they had missed the rapture. And it was presently the day of Christ above in the tribulation period portion of the day of the Lord below. And that's letter B, the man of sin will be revealed. The man of sin will be revealed. Second Thessalonians 2, 3, again, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, it, it, showing himself that, that he is God. Okay, now, again, this, this falling away, it, it happens first. And it, it doesn't say that the falling away and the man of sin are revealed first. No, the falling away is first, and the man of sin is revealed at a later time. We're not given the time, the time frame. Because the falling away happens first, and the day of Christ begins at the rapture. And while the day of Christ is happening in heaven, and we're all sitting at the judgment seat of Christ up there, down below the tribulation period is trucking along, and as I've already mentioned, around that three-and-a-half-year mark, the man of sin is going to be revealed. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy are saying to the church of the Thessalonians, man, if it was the day of Christ above and you'd missed the rapture, and the tribulation was happening below, this is what you would be seeing. And obviously the Thessalonians weren't seeing anything like this going on on earth, so it would have restored the hope that they had lost. And we mentioned this earlier, but here what we need to know is, we need to know some things, though, about this revealing of the man of sin. First, again, the man of sin and the son of perdition, they're called, they're called by a lot of names, it's the same person. They're probably best known as the Antichrist. And, and the way that the Antichrist is revealed is by what's described in verse 4. Verse 4 describes when and how the Antichrist will be revealed. There's a lot of debate on how it is that he's revealed. I believe that the next verse in verse 4 describes how he's going to be revealed because... The midway point of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to sit down in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And like verse 4 says, he sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And that will reveal to many who he really is at that moment. This is what Daniel prophesied about in Daniel 9.27 that we referred to earlier. It's also called the abomination of desolation. Daniel 11, verse 36 through 37, it, it prophesies of the same thing. Our passage in 2 Thessalonians does. Here's what it says in Daniel 11, 36. It says, in the, uh, do we have Daniel 11, 36? There it is, Daniel 11, 36. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all, 
And listen, this is exactly what our passage this morning is describing in verse 4 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. This is what the Antichrist, the man of sin, this is what he's going to do. He is the man of sin. He is the embodiment of sin. The, the beginning of verse 4 says that, that he opposeth and exalteth himself. And as the embodiment of sin, he quite literally opposeth everything that God is. He is the anti-everything God is. He is the anti-Christ. He opposeth. And he's going to sit down in that temple in Jerusalem. So that's how that man of sin is going to be revealed to the world. We can know a lot about the Antichrist prior to that revelation. We know a lot about the Antichrist right this moment. We could dive in and we could dig up a lot about him and his ethnicity and different things about him, right? But he won't be revealed until the abomination of desolation. The abomination of the desolation is, is the revealing. But what is the abomination of desolation? What is this thing really all about, right? We've, we've heard of this, probably most of us, for our whole lives, this whole moment of he's going to sit in the temple in Jerusalem and he's going to do all these things. But, but what, it, what is that even all about, right? What's, the, what, what's going on behind the scenes? And so next we need to, to see and we need to understand what's really happening at the abomination of desolation. It's going to help us as we study this passage to understand what is really happening here? This is all interesting. These end times events are super interesting, right? And you're, you're track, trying to track with it, and it's crazy, and you just can't even hardly imagine it. And that's all fun and good, but what is really going on behind the scenes? What, what, what's motivating it? And, and, and what we need to understand is, is that the, the Antichrist, he wants to pull all the religious systems of the world into one with himself as the sole object of worship. And so when you see everybody going, let's toss aside our petty little doctrines and come together as one, you're just helping him out. Just a little less work he's got to do. <laughs> and we need to remember as the Antichrist, he is masquerading as Christ, but it's not God in human flesh. It's Satan in human flesh. And here's, the, here's what this thing of the abomination of desolation is actually all about, in case you've never known. Satan wants to have a throne on this earth in the same place he once had a throne on this earth. He wants to get something back. In Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, they talk about a time on this earth before Adam and Eve when Lucifer was the man. He, he held the highest position that a created being could hold. Ezekiel 28 and verse 14 describes him as the anointed cherub that covereth. And at this time, he, he led the angelic hosts to worship God. He was the worship leader on earth before Adam and Eve. Isaiah 14, 13, it shows us that when he was here, he had a throne. Ezekiel 28, 13 tells us where that throne was. Do you see where it was? It was in Eden, the garden of God. Have you ever noticed that before? And when you trace Eden in the Bible and you, and you take notes of all the landmarks to just help distinguish where this thing is located, do you know where Lucifer's throne was before he fell? 
in the same exact place that Jesus is going to eventually sit on that throne in Jerusalem and reign in the millennium. In the place where Lucifer exalts himself, in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 13, it's the same place. Isaiah 14, 13, when, I, when Lucifer infamously says in his heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And from that place where that happened, the temple in Jerusalem will be built and Jesus will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years from that exact place in the millennium. Jesus is going to give Satan the facial of the century, the millennium. He's going to give Satan a major facial. I've told you before, this battle between God and Satan, man, this thing is personal. This isn't like any other battle. This thing's personal. The place where Satan used to have a throne on this earth as he led the sons of God in worship is ex- the exact place that Jesus is going to rule and reign from this planet in the millennium. But as we're seeing from 2 Thessalonians this morning, in the middle of the tribulation period, three and a half years into it, before Jesus returns at the second coming to sit on that throne, the Antichrist, Satan in human flesh, is going to stroll on into the temple and try to show himself to be God and plop down and have a seat. And just like when Satan fell in Isaiah 14, it's the same thing. He wants to sit where God sits to take the glory that's solely deserved for God. But he still wants to be like the Most High. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 21, it it says, When this abomination of desolation happens, this is when God is going to really be ticked and this is going to unleash. It says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. The abomination of desolation is what sets the great tribulation into motion, and there's never been a time so horrible before it, and there will never be a time so horrible after it, to the point that for those that see it, they're advised, don't even go down. Don't go anywhere to grab anything. You need to head for the hills and run. And there's no denying how insane it's going to be for those that witness this abomination that actually it finally clicks what they're witnessing. That moment is going to be indescribable. Can you imagine witnessing the actual Antichrist take a seat on the temple with your own two eyes? It's going to be nuts. But do you realize, though, that according to 1 John 4, 3, that even though the Antichrist isn't officially on the scene in that sense yet, because the rapture, of course, hasn't happened yet, So he hasn't signed the peace treaty, hasn't physically sat down in the temple. Do you realize, though, that despite that, that the spirit of Antichrist is at work in our world right now and was even at work clear back in 1 John 4, 3? 
verse talks about the spirit of Antichrist already being at work in the world. Oh, he's very much at work. And we've been seeing how he works over the past two weeks in the realm of false doctrine. 1 John 2.18 even says, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. My gracious, you, listen, we're not out to get people at this church from this pulpit, but we know how Satan works. We know he's working through false doctrine and through false religion, and we know there were many Antichrists back then, but how many do you suppose we got right now? And so because we know that he's at work and we know how he works, we've got the obligation to call out false doctrine, to teach sound doctrine, lest you be deceived. And I don't care if that means we have a thousand people or we have ten, but sound doctrine is going to go forth. And that's the bottom line. Remember, he's sitting down in the temple of God, not the temple of Satan. He's hiding in religion. And he wants to sit on the throne, and he wants to rule and reign, and he wants to call the shots, and he wants to receive all the glory. And you know what? Do you realize that everything that I just laid out about Satan's desire to go back to his place and sit on the throne where he once was is the exact same thing that we're fighting within our own selves every single day? Because before we got saved... We used to sit on the throne of our lives. There was nobody else. And we used to call the shots for our own glory and for our own purposes, didn't we? And then for the most of us in this room, we called on the name of Jesus to save us. What a wonderful day that that was. And when we called on Jesus' name to save us, all of a sudden there was somebody else in the picture. And that someone else is someone that bought and paid for us with his blood that deserves his rightful place on the throne of our lives. And ever since each of us have gotten saved, there's been a battle every day over who's going to sit on the throne. And what we don't realize is when we demote Jesus from his rightful place on the throne of our lives and the throne of our hearts, and we plop down and sit on the throne and call the shots for our own glory and for our own purposes and for our own pleasure, we don't realize exactly how much like Satan we actually are in that. We're trying to go back to where it all started, where we were sitting on the throne, and that seat doesn't belong to us anymore, though. So every day, and oftentimes every hour, and sometimes it feels like every minute, there's a battle for who's going to sit on the throne. Who's sitting on the throne of your life this morning? You better make sure it's the Lord. But that's what this whole abomination of desolation thing is about. It's about a battle over a throne. In the next, in our passage this morning, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they, they emphasize the fact that, that everything they've just laid out in terms of the timing and details regarding the last days, it's actually a reminder for them because these are truths that they've actually already covered. So let's look at understanding the need to be reminded. Let's, we, understanding the need to be reminded. 2 Thessalonians 2.5, it says, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? <laughs> He's saying, you remember I've already told you guys all this stuff before, right? 
Like, so the Thessalonians get a reminder in the first four verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and then they get a rebuke. He's saying, how do you guys not remember all this stuff that I just laid out for you? I've already told you all this. And man, isn't that a shame when that happens? People that have been taught the truth, letting go of the truth. It's a sad deal, because like we talked some about earlier, you've got large amounts of people that grew up, man, and they grew up under sound doctrine and sound teaching, and you watch them as time goes by, and they smell it down the road. And, and, and you want to say to them what Paul says to the Thessalonians, don't you remember what we've taught you? Don't you remember what you've been taught? Don't you remember this? And they smell it down the road for pragmatism's sake. It's a, it's a path of least resistance with all themselves that consider to be Christians. Then you have others that sell it down the road for a position. They sell doctrine down the road to move their way up the pastoral ladder. Bigger church is hiring, and all of a sudden, my doctrine is fluid. I'm, <laughs> I'm identifying as something else today. I've seen a lot of that junk, and to be honest, it makes me sick. It really does. There, it, there's lots of different doctrine that gets sold down the road. And, and listen, that, that doctrine is given to us by God for a purpose. We're to unify around sound doctrine, not ditch doctrine to unify. That's the biblical concept. And there's a real purpose for having an understanding of the timetable of the last days. And then to win a game of Bible trivia, you probably get that wrong anyway because they won't see eye to eye with you, right? It's not to file something in our memory bank. It has the same exact purpose that it had for the children of Issachar in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32. You remember this? And the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel Are you catching that? These folks had understanding of the times. That's the same thing Paul, Silas, and Timothy were trying to give the Thessalonians, an understanding of the times, and it's the same thing that God wants us to have, an understanding of the times. He wants us to understand the doctrine of the end times. He wants us to understand that doctrine and hold on to sound doctrine. Listen. Don't sell your doctrine down the road because it's giving you an understanding of what you ought to do. God is using that doctrine to show you what you ought to be doing with your life. And when we understand the doctrine of the last days, we understand we won't live through the tribulation. And so instead of preparing for that, we need to prepare ourselves to share the message of the love of Jesus Christ with anyone who will listen while we still have time. That's what this whole thing is about. Father, we love you, and we thank you, God, that you have, that you're going to get us out of here prior to the tribulation. We thank you, God, for the hope that we have in you. We thank you that we're not appointed to wrath. God, I pray, though, that, that with these events and with all of these events that we're aware of and the understanding of the times, God, what it fulfill our purpose the purpose for our lives god again we're not trying to win debates around here god we're trying to use it to impact and to change our lives 
We want to use these truths to, to light a fire under us to understand, my goodness, with the reality of what's happening and what's going to happen in the future and with the grace that we've been shown, my goodness, could we just shine that light and to share that truth with, uh, with others before it's too late. God, I do pray that that's what we'll do. I pray everything that's been said would be true to your word, and we love you, Lord. In your name we pray.